0: available if you're new and visiting they're on the the table outside please do take one as you leave later <clears throat> I'm going to read from from the Bible this morning series of uh, what we've called the hard sayings of Jesus it's not that we're trying to be masochistic and finding the really tough bits and and uh, but actually, we, don't, we don't want, to, we want to, to read and understand the whole of Scripture. I mean, someone wisely said, it's not the difficult bits that trouble me, it's the bits that I understand. Um, there are the importance of putting it into practice. But we also wanted over the summer uh, series to, to focus particularly on the hard sayings. And I think most people have found them helpful. That's my hope anyway, even this morning. So Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set up in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus, we know that you have the words of eternal life, that your words again and again you prefix with truly, I tell you, very truly. We recognise some some of the things Jesus that you, you said, and the impact of those. Cause us to stop and to reflect, to, to ask for help, to repent, to say sorry, to turn to you afresh. And I pray that through this portion of Scripture. Not only would you bring challenge, but the opportunity to be made again afresh in the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus pulls no punches when he talks about following him. If you read through the stories of the Gospels again and again, following Jesus involves everything. Our life... Our abilities, our time, how we relate to our neighbours and indeed to our possessions. It talks about the inward journey of, of the motive of the heart, but also how that becomes outworked. Luke's gospel is especially challenging to the wealthy. Today's hard saying of Jesus reflects on and teaches us from Some words he has already expressed, Luke has already positioned in chapter 6, verse 20 and 24. In Luke's uh, Beatitudes, in Matthew, uh, we hear them, but in Luke's Beatitude, uh, we hear these words. Jesus says in verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Remember, Matthew said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke, it's blessed are you who are poor. And verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Particularly in Luke, but not just reserved to Luke. Jesus is continually challenging people who are wealthy. He said that money could make uh, the difference between entrance entrance. Uh, could make the entrance into God's realm so tiny that a camel could more easily pass through the eye of a needle than the rich enter the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story of a rich farmer with lots of fields and opportunities, with bumper crops. And he looks out and he says, I must build some bigger barns as my insurance uh, insurance policy To make sure that he's satisfied in the things of life, his self-centered plans, but suddenly he runs out of time before his sudden death. Jesus has much to say on the subject of wealth. He calls us to follow him as disciples. And that means, among other things, a willingness to handle money differently. Wealth is a big issue. I once heard uh, a preacher talk pastorally. He, he said that from a big church in America of ten fifteen thousand 15,000 people served there for 30 years. And he said people have visited him with all sorts of, of pastoral uh, problems, of pastoral opportunities, of, of a kind of sensing God. And he said there's, there's the number of people who have come to him and, and talked about uh, is there a call on my life to overseas and, and stepping out in faith? The number of people who've call, called on him for wisdom and help because they're struggling in their marriage or caught up with adultery. He'd lost count, but he said, I, can't, I could count on the number of fingers on one hand, the number of people who've come and said, help me with my finances to be more godly. This touches close to home. Jesus warned potential disciples that they uh, they must say no to their possessions if they want to follow him, Luke 14. In the same way, those of you do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. He shocks the rich young ruler by challenging him to give away all his wealth and follow Jesus. And so Luke 16. In the Bible, in the story that we've read, we've two characters, Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus is amazing at storytelling, and he paints the picture with a brevity of words, but I'm sure you can see it. The two men live in close proximity. The poor man lies on the rich man's doorstep. But their worlds are light years apart. The rich man wears expensive designer and tailor-made clothes and eats only the finest gourmet food. Every day, the poor man is dropped by his friends, probably at the rich man's gate. The word in this story, the, this kind of liter- laid, this we're told, that the, 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 the beggar, the poor man, Lazarus, is laid At the door, that word in the original literally means has been thrown there. Like something discarded. Lazarus is too ill to work and long to eat the bread and have something that the rich man and his friends and his guests used to have all the time. And Jesus draws us in. In your mind's eye, as you see Lazarus by the door, and the contrast light years apart, along come some dogs, and they see the sores and the ulcers on the poor man's body, and they were irritated, infected as the dogs licked them. And he was powerless to do anything about it. Remember, these street dogs are not pampered poodles. In Jesus' time... They were considered unclean. There is Lazarus lying, helpless and powerless. Even dogs licking his sores. The story is quite clear. Lazarus is not receiving any help from others. His only hope rests in the kindness of God. Time is called. Both die. The rich man, no doubt, had a full burial with guests and speeches and grieving. And quiche. And egg sandwiches. And with all the honour afforded to a man of fame and renown. Lazarus porpoise funeral. No one really noticed. The text kind of implies that he may not even have had a funeral or burial. The story is silent. The rich man who is nameless died and went into torment in Hades and Lazarus. The poor man carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Finally, comfort and bliss. The rich man descends from a life of comfort and experiences torment, while the poor man ascends from a life of misery to enjoy the company of Father Abraham. Again, Jesus, in a few words, draws the picture so clearly. This time, the role's reversed. The rich man is in severe discomfort. Hades is not a good place in agony and desperate, even for a moment of comfort. And in his torment, he sees far in the distance uh, uh, Abraham and Lazarus, and he calls, calls to Abraham. Abraham, send Lazarus. Send him so he can dip his finger in a bit of water and give me a moment of reprieve. And Abraham says, even if I wanted to, it's impossible. There's this great gulf, this great divide between Hades and paradise. And there's no way to pass from one place to the other or back again. And so the rich man pleads to Abraham, have Lazarus raised and returned to earth so that he can go to my brothers. Let Let me stay here in Hades, but I don't want them to come where I am. He argues they'll listen to someone if they come back from the dead, won't they? Abraham replies, if they won't and don't listen to Moses and to the law or the prophets, of the whole counsel and wisdom of God, they won't listen to a person raised from the dead. And the parable finishes. The rich man in Hades, tortured by his belated regrets and a searing conscience that burns with an unrelieved sense of guilt. And Lazarus, in the realm of bliss and paradise, in the company of God and all his people. So the question must be posed, why did the rich man go to Hades? Why do you think? Was it simply that he was rich? No. So why? Why in the story is the rich man there? I think the answer is because he was indifferent. he knew lazarus's name but was continually blind to him at the gate the rich man in his coming and going in his living the high life never really saw he just saw lazarus as part of the landscape and ignored that the parable doesn't condemn wealth And possessions, they're not what condemned this man to misery, the rich man. But it seems to be rather that it's to do with the neglect of the needy man at his doorstep. The blind pursuit of a life of luxury in full view of the destitute man lying unaided, licked by dogs, sweltering in the sun, festering in the sores. I don't know if you noticed in the story that even in death, the rich man cannot see Lazarus as a person of worth. Remember, he calls out to Abraham. And seeing Lazarus there, still seeing him as kind of a slave to be sent to relieve the rich man's pain. Or even as someone, an emissary, uh, someone, a messenger to go and warn his brothers. Even in death, even in judgment, the rich man is so self-absorbed, so absorbed in his own need, he still cannot understand. Send Lazarus. So if the rich man was there because of indifference, why was Lazarus in paradise? Was it simply because he was poor? No. But because he was poor in spirit. This, this story is an interesting story. Do you, do you know that this is the only parable that Jesus tells that names one of the characters in the story. We've got the farmer, and the merchant, and the good, uh, the, uh, the 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 one who sows the seed. We've got the good Samaritan. We've got the uh, the, uh, the loving father and his two sons, so forth and so forth. This is the only parable where one of the characters is named Lazarus. And indeed, we also have. Abraham. Those two names speak profoundly. As the rich man sees, sees Abraham, the one of, uh, of the patriarch, the, the, the great father of the people of Israel, whose name was changed, and that means the father of many or the multitude. In other words the welcome and the place and the opportunity for many to come and Lazarus his name means god is my help god is my help god is my help the rich man is nameless but we all should do well to remember god is our This parable is powerful and the purpose is profound. Like all parables, the story impacts us and the details of the story help us to delve deeper. Just a few observations, perhaps, uh, that are reinforced in other places in the scripture about death. Again, a great taboo of our age. It seems to be... uh, at least according to this parable and in other places, that when you die, you retain your personality. What makes me and you, individuals, our character, our nature, we're not conformed or translated into some sort of robots, but rather we retain our personality between now and eternity. Secondly, that that death is a great leveler and a great equalizer. The rich man doesn't take his wealth with him, and Lazarus leaves his poverty and sickness behind. The injustice in life is dealt with. That is good news. Thirdly, death does not obliterate memory. The rich man has full recall. In fact, it's probable that memory may go dim... In eternity to the troubles and forgiven sin and our failures. But the rich man knows. And fourth, just a slight observation, is that uh, the people recognize one another. The rich man recognizes Lazarus. We shall call each other by name. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says we shall see face to face. But that isn't the main thrust of this story. The rich man's life is filled with everything money could buy, and he lived in abundant luxury. His wealth probably gained, uh, was probably gained honestly. There's no sense in which this story says this is a corrupt man. The story doesn't tell us much about him, except his wealth and his life of luxury and his failure to see the poor. We don't know if he was a good husband and father, possibly. He could have been honest in his business dealings. The story is silent about his religious practices, how regular he was in worship, how many songs and scriptures he'd memorized. Of course, he was a welcome host and entertained, and drew many through hospitality from the prominent people of the region. Come. And dine with me. The parable is so silent. Except for this one thing. His failure is evident in his refusal to see Lazarus. The man. His neighbor. And refusing not just once but again and again. To extend helping hands. Not even a few crumbs. He, the rich man, had no time or place for personal compassion. Too busy. He was blatantly indifferent. If he even ever noticed Lazarus, maybe it was just in recognition that this man was too ill to be of any use to him at all. You see, this parable drives at this truth. The money wasn't the problem. The money wasn't tainted. But it was the lack of compassion in this rich man for individuals who were in need. And that the use of his money, therefore, was wasteful and irresponsible because of the neglect of the poor who had no place in his planning or his life. I'm well aware... In a Western society, in the place that we are this morning, that this is a challenging word. Since Moses, we are told... Through the law and the prophets, again and again, the scriptures teach and tell and demonstrate and picture the importance of kindness, of caring for our neighbor, of compassion for the needy, for the the foreigner, the refugee, for um, for, for the weak and the vulnerable, for the widow and childless. And as such, Jesus says, the rich man and his brothers, no excuse. So let's be honest. The truth about us is this. We all have some wealth. Is that true to say? We do. And we all have some responsibility. There is a tendency for us to think, well, I'm not as wealthy as. To do the comparison game. We cannot just look to the super-rich with those with more and say it's their responsibility. But we also must face up to the reality that astonishing statistic that five billionaires, five, any one of those, not even just the richest five, but five billionaires own more than 90% of the world's population put together. But it's not enough just to say, well, it's their problem. We also need to recognize that some people have more money and more talent and more ability. And because of that, the call on them, the call on us, is to take a greater responsibility. To be blessed like this is is a calling upon us to integrate our stewardship of the great blessing we have of not just feather our own nest. It's the way of Jesus. When you read the ongoing story of Jesus and his people, and these are just a few. There is the responsibility and the recognition that as believers, we integrate who we are and what we have and what God has given us, whether it's physical wealth or the abilities and talents that we have, to use what we have wisely. So in in Acts 6, there are a bunch of widows, and and there's a controversy between the Hebrew and the, 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 uh, the, uh, the Greek ones, and the Greek widows are getting passed over a little bit. And so they set us up beside people to care and make sure no one was left out. We see again through the stories of the the New Testament that the believers in Jerusalem, when there was famine or when they were under persecution, the rest of the church worldwide had offerings that Paul would bring with him back to Jerusalem in order to support the sisters and brothers in Jerusalem. John and Peter, in Acts 3, when they encountered a beggar at the gate called Beautiful, said, we haven't got much. What we have faith in Jesus we give to you. Get up and walk. But equally, the scriptures have wealthy people. And they're celebrated. Lydia, in Acts 16, was also uh, not just wearing purple cloth like the rich man in this story, but was a dealer in purple cloth. She was at In haute haute, haute, couture, is that how you say it? It's not my expertise. But she was a wealthy merchant. And she listened to Paul and became a believer and a disciple and became a key person. A wealthy merchant. Romans 16, we're given a glimpse of a lady called Phoebe. Romans 16, 1 to 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Cancray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. In other words, a leader with great means, but supported the work of the kingdom. A benefactor. Wealth should be a means of blessing, but it can also be a death trap. Stewardship calls for sharing and serving, generosity, the discipline of giving. Of the things I think scripture teaches us is, is, the, is the practice of, of giving, of recognizing that that which we receive, I'm talking about money here as well as other things, but in particular money, of giving back a proportion of that for the work of the Lord. The Old Testament talks about a tithe, a tenth, the first part of what you receive to give back, to live from the ninety. And to give back to the Lord the first fruits. I don't think the, the New Testament talks in terms of, of, of legalism. It must be 10%. But goes kind of above and beyond and talks about abundant generosity. From the gracious abundance that God has given to give freely. I know the outworking of that is also complicated. Because we live with debt, we live with mortgages, we live with making sure that we're provided for and not going to be a burden in later life. And and we're taxed and we have national insurance and, and all those things. I'm not saying this is an easy dilemma, but I am asking you to consider how wealth is with you and whether what you have is used as a blessing or is it becoming a death trap. But also, just bear in mind, I'm not just talking about wealth. Of what we have been given and how we can be generous with it. I've always been really struck because, I guess, of the contrast of of the witness and the example of Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States. He he is, he's become quite elderly now, but... um, I'm not sure whether this is still true, but I know for many, many years since he was president, he's been involved with Habitat for for Humanity, building houses. It's not just that he advocates for it. It's not just that he he puts his name to the bottom of a slogan of a publicity drive. It's not just that he gives some money to say this is a good cause. He puts on overalls and takes up a hammer and builds homes for needy families. He gets stuck in. And he also teaches Sunday school week by week by week. Not sure what the security, the secret service do at that point, but uh, maybe they get to listen in. I love that. Faithful stewards personalize their commitment and their involvement without being showy, Or saying, I want this block or this thing to be named after me. Not for everyone to see, oh, you're amazing. Look at what you're doing. But faithful stewards rather see the need and make a difference. Of course, financially, but more than that. Of being personally involved. They see the Lazaruses of their neighborhood of their street, of their family, of our country, and indeed with our global media, our world. We see the Lazaruses of our neighborhood. And the question is, are we indifferent to the cries for help? And it's not an excuse to say, oh, the need is so much. Who am I? What can I do? Because there's always somewhere to start. There's classic illustrations about what differences a snowflake mean. I'm not meaning millennials at this point. Literal snowflakes. You know that thing, what the does one snowflake mean? Make, well, not much. Melts quickly. But the illustration goes, have a whole bunch of snowflakes. It can stop the nation. Or that kind of lovely story of of a storm on a beach and there's a lady walking along picking up sea urchins or starfish depending on how the story goes (laughs) flinging one by one by one by one back and some fellow beachcomber says what do you think you're doing? there's too many makes no difference to that starfish it makes a difference see that's the call of this parable Who are the poor? Well, there are some desperately poor people, the obvious poor. But there's also those who are lonely and isolated. There's the forgotten. There's the desperate, the woes who are struggling again and again for work. There's the asylum seeker and the refugee. There's the lonely and the shut-in and the dementia sufferer. There's the time poor, desperate for a break. Who do we see? See, the parable highlights indifference and coldness of heart and paints this most dramatic picture of reversal. This isn't about doing more good. For Jesus has the story conclude. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even when someone rises from the dead. Implicit in that is this kind of Jesus saying, do you see? That we are on the other end of this story, not the rich man in Hades, nor are we Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham currently. But we are on the other end of the story, for a man has come back from the dead and declared, I am alive forevermore. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We would be wise to listen to him. I want to sum up with a video. Some of you may have seen it before, but it just begins to help illustrate some of these things.
1: Six humans trapped by happenstance in bleak and bitter cold. Each possessed a stick of wood, or so the stories told. Their dying fire in need of logs, the first man held his back. For all the faces round the fire, he noticed one was black. The next man looking across the way, saw one not of his church and couldn't bring himself to give the fire his stick of birch. The third one sat in tattered clothes. He gave his coat a hitch. Why should his log be put to use to warm the idle rich? The rich man just sat back and thought of the wealth he had in store and how to keep what he had earned from the lazy, shiftless poor. The black man's face bespoke revenge as the fire passed from his sight, for all he saw in his stick of wood was a chance to spite the white. The last man of this fallen group did naught except for gain. Giving only to those who gave was how he played the game. Their logs held tight in death's still hand was proof of human sin. They did not die from the cold without. They died from the cold within.
0: to respond just uh, straight away with a song that he is mighty to save everyone needs compassion able and willing please to stand with me as we as we respond to the word of god
2: It's never failing. Take I'm not
0: From it up, and the song will come back to you. So take me as you find me in a moment. I've been just kind of dwelling on on how we can respond. The suggestions that I make, in no way, let them cloud out what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. What He has said.